The Apostle Peter was a sovereignty man through and through. You remember in the very first sermon he ever preached after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he led with the sovereignty of God. In Acts chapter 2, this is the second most important sermon in the history of Christendom, only after the Sermon on the Mount by our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is going to preach a sermon that day in the second chapter of Acts, the first sermon of the New Covenant era. And what does he lead with? He leads with the sovereignty of God. When he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And now, at the beginning of this letter, for the second time, I hope you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, for the second time already, he wants to write about sovereignty. He's brought up the sovereignty of God in verse 2 of this epistle when he speaks of God's electing grace. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we mean that according to the scriptures, God has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases, and that there is no other ultimate power besides the triune God, and his holy plan for the world will prevail over any and all opposition. Listen to scripture defining God's sovereignty. For example, in Psalm 115, the psalmist writes, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's not a frustrated God because of his inability to change a situation. The psalmist writes again in Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. If he wants the sun to stand still, as we'll see in Joshua 10, he simply, simply makes it so. If he wants to part the seas and suspend what we would call the laws of nature in Exodus 14 and makes the water stand up like skyscraper walls, so be it. Now in 1 Peter 1, I hope you're looking at that first chapter there. The Apostle Peter has been rehearsing for us our great privileges, the blessings we enjoy in our salvation. So in verse 2, the first blessing he wants to speak of is our election, that we were sovereignly chosen before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 3, he speaks of our regeneration, that we were born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, he speaks of how we were kept, preserved in that status. And in verse 7, he speaks of how we have been made to be the possessors of a genuine faith in the right object, the Lord Jesus. And in verse 14, he talks about the blessed work of the Holy Spirit, how we are obedient because of God's sanctifying work in us, lovers of God's good commands. And in verse 17, he talks about that, that truth which applies to every believer, that they all call on the Father. Every true believer is known by this, they pray. And again in verse 17, he speaks of another one of the, the great privileges we enjoy in our salvation. We walk in the fear of the Lord. Every believer is possessed by that reverential awe of God, which befits a creature who walks before the face of their holy creator. And then in verse 18 and 19, Peter speaks of our redemption, our purchase by the blood of Jesus. But today it's going to be our joy to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And I want us to look at four things. I hope you're looking at verse 20 and 21.
four truths concerning our Lord Jesus that Peter speaks of. The first is, is Peter will say he's the sovereignly foreordained one. Second, that Jesus is the manifested one. Thirdly, that Jesus is the mediator. And fourth, he's the glorious one. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to take in all of this truth about our Lord Jesus. And so let's plead for that now. Our Father, we are weak in faith. We're curious about things that you tell us are secrets, and we neglect the things that you reveal repeatedly to us in your word. So now send your Holy Spirit to come and strengthen us in our belief in and our understanding of your holy word. Enable us now to shut out all the distractions the evil one will surely send our way so that we might deeply drink from your truth. We pray in the name of our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Look carefully at verse 20. Again, as we said, we're going to look at four things about Christ that Peter tells us in this very tight context, that he's the foreordained one, he's the manifested one, he's the mediator, and he's the glorious one. But I want to begin where Peter begins. He begins by talking about Jesus was the one who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, in our text, Peter brings up a specific aspect of God's sovereignty, namely his foreordaining. Now, a synonym for this, if you're here today and you're saying, what is this language that Carl is speaking? And by the way, what is it he's doing? Well, if you're new here, let me first of all tell you, we do this every Sunday morning and Sunday night. We preach through books of the Bible, New Testament books, in the morning, and we typically, in the evening, preach through Old Testament books. We have just begun our study of the life and and book of Joshua that we'll be continuing tonight at 6 p.m., but we're looking through, very carefully analyzing, clause by clause, verse by verse, the writings of the Apostle Peter. And we'll notice, now we've come to verse 20 and 21, Peter uses this term. He says of Jesus that he indeed was foreordained when before the foundation of the world. What is meant by foreordination? What is meant, what the Bible says foreordination is, is it's God's eternal decree of everything that occurs in time and space. Now, most believers will grant that God foreordained, oh, some things, I suppose. But what the Bible wants to go to great extents to say is God has foreordained, as our children learn in catechids class on Wednesday nights, whatsoever comes to pass. Now, this is deeply rooted in Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 1, Peter's fellow apostle Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is absolutely nothing outside of God's foreordaining decree. R.C. Sproul made a career on this one phrase when he would say, it seems like every time he spoke, if there is one random molecule afoot in the universe, then God is not in control. And we would say amen to that. I've had professing believers say, as we've taught on God's sovereignty, well, I'll never believe that. Yes, you will. And I'll tell you how I know. Because in Revelation 4, we're told that the entire population of heaven, 
falls down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. And here's what they say. This is the song of every believer. Now, there will be no believer standing off to the side saying, we're not sovereignty, men. We don't join in the praise on this part. We'll be quiet. Listen to what they all say according to Revelations 4. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, sovereignty, they exist and they were created. The decree of God that Peter is speaking of here in verse 20 means that God foreordains all things. Scripture uses broad, expansive language to describe the realm of God's decree. But perhaps the richest term to describe God's decree or his foreordination is this little phrase, all things. It's used over and over and over again. We're told in Ephesians 1.11 that God works All things after the counsel of his will. This refers to his sovereign eternal plan. We're told in Romans 8 that he causes all things to work together for good for his elect. He predestines, he calls, he justifies. We're told that in Romans chapter 11, all things are from him, his decrees, are through him by his providential hand and to him for his own glory. Now, we have to ask a time question. Did God ordain today, yesterday? When did he foreordain all things? According to Isaiah 46, the Lord says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times I have declared things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. Even your salvation, God's choice of his people, was planned before the foundation of the earth, we're told in Ephesians 1.4. Now look carefully at our text in verse 20. Peter says, he, speaking of Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And of course he is, because everything is. Nothing is outside God's foreordination. Think about what we are told specifically God foreordains. I so appreciate Uh, Elder Frederick Marcinac, I promise you this morning that the elders don't plan with me their prayers to sync up with my sermons, but Frederick couldn't have done a better job. If you were listening and praying along with him, you'll notice that he was thanking God for all the following things, that, that God foreordains the raising up of rulers. We're told in Daniel chapter 4, the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. He's sovereign in the foreordination of the flight and fall of sparrows. We're told in Matthew 10, not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's will and decree. We're told that the hairs on your head are numbered. This too is ordained and decreed by God. We're told in Job 37 that the control of the weather, all in God's foreordination. We're even told that so-called chance events in Proverbs 16.33, are ordained. We're told there, the lot is cast into the lap or the dice is cast onto the table, but it's every decision is of the Lord. Scripture repeatedly, loudly asserts that every action, every thought is foreordained. God's sovereign will, by the way, is irresistible. No one can withstand or frustrate his purposes or desires. Listen to how often God says, by the way, puny, fallen creature, 
You cannot stop God in his decree. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're told the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Or in Daniel chapter 4, we have from the mouth of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who says, the Lord does according to his will in the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's foreordaining decree certainly extends to our salvation. We're told, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that he sovereignly decrees the salvation of individuals by his choice. Listen to the repeated phrase in 1 Corinthians 1. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God has chosen the things that are despised so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then we're told even in 1 Peter 2, we'll come to that soon enough in verse 8 and 9, that he as well sovereignly decrees the reprobation of other men. Now remember, what we're, what we're doing here is we're painting a huge picture of God's sovereign decree, his foreordination. I'm setting you up. Remember, God controls even the hearts of men, especially the hearts of rulers. We're told in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like water wherever he wishes. Now, believer, you implicitly know this. That's why you pray for your unbelieving family members and friends by crying out, God save them. When you pray for the salvation of men, you're asking God to sovereignly change men, to intervene and do what he does as a sovereign God. And let me tell you, men don't like these words. You see verse 20, where you see that word foreordination? Men don't naturally like it. They don't like sovereignty. They don't like the decree because it puts the authority of God right in their face. And they want to maintain the illusion that they are somehow in control of their lives. But let me remind you of God's favorite illustration about control. He uses it over and over again in Isaiah and Romans especially. In Romans 9, God uses it for, I think, the seventh time. And he says this, God will have mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And here comes the favorite illustration God uses to just speak of his sovereignty. Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor. Now these doctrines, if you're here today and you're thinking, I've never heard of such a thing. These doctrines are not novelties. They're not sectarian. Listen to Charles Spurgeon speaking about this. He says, when I'm preaching the sovereignty of God, I'm preaching no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines which are nothing but the sure revealed truth of God. When I contemplate this truth, I go on a journey into the past. And as I go backwards in history, I see believer after believer and martyr after martyr standing up to shake hands with me. Were I a believer in free will and not sovereignty? I would have to walk for centuries alone. Here and there a heretic might rise up and call me brother. 
but as a sovereignty man. I see the past peopled with my brethren. I behold a vast multitude who confess the same truth as I do now. Spurgeon is saying in a quaint way what we say in our confessions. Every major Protestant creed states the truths I've just been naming. Whether you're an Anglican and the 39 articles state that. If you're a Baptist, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 states that. Certainly all Presbyterian and Reformed creeds and confessions state this. And so when a person disavows this and says, don't like sovereignty, don't like the decree, don't like coordination, you need to know this. You're standing out of the mainstream of historic Protestantism. In fact, until a person learns that God is sovereign, he never really knows God at all. For the God of the Bible is king and man is subject. The God of the Bible is creator and man is creature. The God of the Bible rules and man submits. God is the one who is totally sovereign and free in all his plans and actions. And man is the one who is totally accountable to God. Now the reason why I've gone on this long tear is I want you to look at that word in verse 20. Because there Peter specifically applies it to Christ. He speaks of his manifestation being foreordained. And the reason why this is important is you need to know the time of his incarnation was foreordained. It was perfect timing. It would have been out of time if it would have happened in 300 B.C. or 200 A.D. The minutest circumstances of his life were eternally decreed. All were fixed in the divine councils. So that Jesus can be called, listen to these words from Revelation 13. He can be called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But especially, when you look at verse 20, there's one aspect of his life that was especially foreordained. And Jesus is the one who in the days of his flesh wants to talk about this more than any. He wants to talk about these events that are upcoming that have been foreordained from eternity past in the councils of the Godhead. For example, in Mark chapter 8, we read, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. Jesus wanted to talk about the foreordaining of all the events that we'll celebrate this week, the cross, the resurrection. And then in John 17, that night just before his arrest in his high priestly prayer, we're told Jesus spoke these words, lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The foreordained hour. The hour determined by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the holy covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. The hour of his death and then resurrection. And then Peter, as I spoke of a moment ago. Peter picking up on how often he heard his Lord Jesus in those three and a half years he was with him speak of foreordination and sovereignty and decree. What is it that comes out of his mouth first? When he stands up on the day of Pentecost and begins his sermon, you would think, well, he's going to begin with the love of God. He'll get to that. He's going to begin with the doctrine of creation. He's going to be, no. He begins with sovereignty. In Acts chapter 2, when we read these words, he says, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. 
And so it's, it's only natural that Peter would bring it up again. And he preached about it on the day of Pentecost. He brings it up again in his epistle. Jesus is the sovereignly foreordained one. The second thing that Peter wants to tell you about Jesus is Jesus is the manifested one. Look as well in verse 20. We're told he was manifested in these last times for you. By manifested, we simply mean that Jesus was shown forth. He was uncovered. Anyone could have seen him and heard him. When Peter says that Jesus was the manifested one, he means these things didn't happen in private. They didn't happen in a closet. They weren't hidden. Everything Jesus did was open. That's why Peter's fellow apostle Paul will say in 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. He was shown. The second person of the Trinity had lived in the majestic splendor of his deity from eternity past in perfect unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, receiving the worship of the angels and exercising his power in the works of creation and providence. But then, and then he took to himself flesh and he was shown without sin by the miracle of the virgin conception taking a real human nature, identical to us in his human body, even entering a woman's womb and residing and growing there for nine months. And so scripture everywhere wants to talk about this as a true manifestation. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. John is much more concise. He simply says this in John 1.14. The word became flesh. He was manifested. He who was the ancient of days became a helpless infant. The one who never sleeps or slumbers came and grew weary after a hard day's work. He who is blessed forever came and in public was designed to be a curse for his people. The giver of life took flesh to die. Everything he did on earth, he did in a real human body and could be seen. The events of his passion, especially the last week of his life, were physical, visual events. His real cheek was kissed by Judas. That same real cheek was then slapped and spit on. His real back was flogged and ripped apart by Roman whips. His real forehead and scalp were torn, lacerated by a crown made of spiky thorns. As Peter will say in 1 Peter 4, 1, Jesus suffered in the flesh. He was manifested. He died in the flesh after being nailed with iron nails to a real cross of wood. All this happened in a real body that was being punished for your sin and mine. And then it was a real body, a corpse, growing cold, that was taken down from the cross, washed, wrapped in linen, laid in a borrowed tomb. God the Son didn't just appear in a body and then disappear. The body in which he appeared was the body that was crucified, dead, and buried. Any denial of a physical incarnation, John tells us in 1 John 4, can only be done by an antichrist. And notice the little time signature in verse 20. Peter uses an interesting phrase that's used all through the New Testament. He says, this happened in these last times. That was 1970 years ago. 
The Apostle Peter called the era he was living in these last times. We're still living in these last times. The term simply means, for those of you who want to say, does this mean the rapture is coming next week? This simply means these last times speaks of the time between the first coming of Christ, his incarnation, and his second coming. So far, the last times have gone on for 1,990 years. The third aspect of Christ that Peter wants to talk about, he talks about Christ, the sovereignly foreordained one, the manifested one, and now he talks about him as the mediator. Look at verse 21 carefully. Peter says, who through him, that is Jesus, who through him believe in God. Look at that little phrase, through him. It's a mediatorial phrase. That means you cannot come to the Father unless you come through the door of Jesus. Peter was there in the upper room that night when Jesus said, No one comes to the Father but through me. And look at what Peter's simply affirming. Peter's not making up anything new. All he's saying is what he's heard Jesus say in verse 21. Who through him believe in God. What you have here is a word of Christ's necessary mediation in a world of pluralism and relativism. The claim to exclusivity that Jesus is the only mediator is the scandal of modern Christianity. But let me clarify this issue for you. Who is it in John 14 who makes this claim to one-wayness? It's none other than Jesus himself. Who is it who makes the claim now in our text of one-wayness. It's Peter. He's in the inner circle of his apostles who say, through him you're going to believe in God. This is not a claim cooked up by intolerant Americans from the 21st century. It is Jesus who shuts out all other ways in John 14. It is Jesus' leading apostle or one of Peter. Jesus has said it and will stand by it. When the culture shrieks and gnashes their teeth, we must graciously, humbly point them to the words of Christ and his apostles and say, you may only come to the Father through him. If you're offended, it is not by me. I am only the mouthpiece. Lost men will always stumble over Jesus as the mediator. By the way, These words should not be seen as offensive, but encouraging and seen as incredibly gracious that our God would make so plain and clear the only way to eternal life. Would it be said of you that you're mean and exclusionary if you stood at the one door to a burning building and yelled to the inhabitants, come out by this door. All others are locked and barred and you'll die trying them. No, you'd be seen as heroic and helpful and compassionate that you pointed men out to the one way to safety. That's what Peter's doing in verse 21. Look at them there. When he says, who through him, he's saying he's the only door. He's the way. Only through him can you come to saving faith. That's why Paul will write later in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You have nothing to apologize for. Nothing to be embarrassed about when you state that Jesus of the Bible is the only way to salvation. You're standing squarely with both feet on the rock of Holy Scripture. The fourth thing that Peter wants to say about Jesus, he said that he's the foreordained one, the manifested one, the mediator. 
And now he says, he's the glorious one. Look at verse 21. Peter says that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. The Father raised Jesus because Christ in his life, death, and resurrection had perfectly satisfied the justice of a holy God. The Father didn't raise Jesus from the dead to be a mere mortal to suffer and die again. He brought him into heaven and set him at the right hand as Lord of the universe. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. God has now highly exalted him. What does Peter mean when he says he's given him glory? Well, our Lord's current session has glory. He is surrounded by the angels where he is worshipped. His second coming will be in might and glory. This is that second advent that the scriptures speak of in such amazed tone. At his first advent, Jesus came low. But at his second coming, he will come, as Daniel 7 says, riding on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says of himself in Mark chapter 13, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory. He will come with a huge entourage of thousands and tens of thousands of angels. His judgment will be marked by glory. And then his eternal reign will be marked by an ever-increasing glory. In the climax of Handel's Messiah, the choir sings over and over again, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and he shall reign forever and ever, which of course is a quote from Revelation 22. There will never be, you see, my friends, an end to the exaltation of Christ. No intermission, no coup attempts. He will not grow weary of reigning. No term limits. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And there is one word that can apply to it all. Glory, Peter says. So we begin to look at the table now. How do we apply this word? Let me make a couple of applications. And I want to ask you to consider the God you are worshiping and serving. Is it this God? Are you worshiping the one who foreordains all things? If not, you may be deluding yourself with idolatry. Writing 90 years ago, A.W. Pink wrote, The God of our century now no more resembles the supreme sovereign of Holy Scripture than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory and power of the noonday sun. The God who is now talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in the average Sunday school, mentioned in popular religious literature, is the figment of human imagination and the invention of sentimentality. Pink continues, The heathen outside of Christendom form gods out of wood and stone, but millions of heathen inside of Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal imagination. In reality, Pink concludes, they are atheists. For there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely sovereign foreordaining God and no God at all. A God whose will can be resisted, whose designs can be frustrated, whose purposes can be checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and is so far from being a fit object of worship, he merits nothing but pity. Let me ask you this morning. Who is your God? When you see these words, like the one in our text, foreordained, sovereign, decreed, do you revel and say, that is my God? 
He's the mighty God. He's the one who is in control of all things. A second application I would make. Because of this, because our God is sovereign, our lives have purpose. They're not just the product of luck or chance. It was John Murray who wrote the very words, luck and chance don't belong in the Christian man's vocabulary. Events are often fortuitous to us because their reason, order, and end are hidden in the counsel of God and they're not apprehended by our minds. But they're not fortuitous for God, but they are just his will. My friend, every detail of your life, was ordained from all eternity and is overseen by a sovereign God. What comfort. As our elder Frederick Marcinek just prayed, this should take away fear and worry. Even if the economy and nation seem to be crumbling, even if the world order is changing, even if your favorite candidate is, is not winning or not losing or whatever, we know that a sovereign God, according to Romans 8, is working all things together for our good, on our behalf. That's why the psalmist can write, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you as creatures coming to a creator. We come to you as subjects coming to a sovereign. Lord, we ask that you would give us a delight in these truths. Whenever we meditate upon your sovereignty. You're gathering in the council and the covenant of redemption before all time to ordain good and blessing for your people. Lord, we pray this truth would move us to worship and to rejoice every time we meditate upon it. Lord, we pray as a, as a church, this would be our delight, just as the apostle Peter was never shy about proclaiming these things, whether it be on the day of Pentecost or in his epistles. Lord, we pray it would be our delight to proclaim you as